Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Vandalia, Michigan campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. I was pretty excited when Cameron gave me this topic. And so today, you have the, the, the good fortune of being here for an historical overview of the big ideas of grace. Um, so this is a little bit different than uh, our... Uh, a normal sermon because we're going to be looking back at this big swath of history over the last 2,000 years since the, the end of the, the New Testament, right? Christians have been talking uh, about grace and trying to decide, you know, how does it work? You know, what does this, this look like? And so today uh, I am going to attempt to look at some of the, what I consider some of the most important pieces of the historical puzzle as we have wrestled through this idea of grace, and specifically saving grace today. Um, so this will either be your favorite message of the year or your least favorite. So we'll see. Well, it depends on if you like history or not. So it's going to be fun. I'm excited about it. And, and so we are looking at grace. We're diving down into grace so much uh, this year is because grace is really the central theme of the Bible, right? We see it on every page. This book is saturated with the grace of God. From Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, God, in his cursing of the serpent, promises to send a Messiah, to send someone who would crush the head of the enemy and restore this fallen people back into right relationship with God. And then the very last sentence of our biblical canon, the last verse of Revelation says, may the, peace, or the, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So we see from beginning to the end and everywhere between this book is saturated with the grace of God to save this lost and helpless humanity. And because it's the central theme of the Bible, uh, disciples and scholars and philosophers have been wrestling through this idea for thousands of years. Right? And this is just, this is not an actual picture, this is an artist's rendition of the first church council at Nicaea. And we all, we say the, the Nicene Creed uh, at the, during communion, the first week of every month. And we value the church councils. We value the creeds. We, we value the church fathers because they have wrestled through these ideas, these great doctrines for hundreds of years trying to rightly parse out how things like grace work. And it's important for us to remember that as New Day Community Church, as modern-day evangelicals, we didn't pop up out of the ground, out of nowhere. We have a long and amazing tradition that has brought us to where we are. And so we utilize these things from the church history because it helps us to make sure we are rightly interpreting Scripture. Maybe it reveals errors that we could otherwise fall into, right? And so that is what we're really going to, the reason that we're looking at this historical overview of the doctrine of grace. So if this is the only Sunday you are here, 
Uh, I better tell you what grace is, just a little snippet. Uh, but we've had already two amazing teachings, Pastor Cameron on the 6th and Dale last week on the 13th, some really great definitions in helping us to understand what grace is. All right? And grace is an attribute. It is a, a quality of God. It is one of his, uh, an aspect of his love. In grace, I believe Dale said, was God giving his people what they don't deserve, pouring out what they don't deserve, mercy sheltering people from what we do deserve. Right? But grace is this unmerited favor that God lavishes upon us. And it is to really understand the intensity, the, the immensity of, of grace, we have to understand the significance of our sin. And we have, the Bible teaches us that we have inherited this sin nature, this original sin from Adam. It, from Adam, he, he uh, ate of the forbidden tree, and this sin enters into humanity and passes on to each and every one of us. And because of this sin, and because of the powers and principalities pushing us and our own broken natures, pushing us towards sin, we have this huge gap between us and God, right? This gap that we absolutely cannot cross no matter what we do. And left, whoa, left to our own devices, I'm going to put this back here, to our own devices, right, we, I'm not going to put it back there, that's worse. Let's see here, just bear with me. There we go. Okay, left to our own devices, we are incapable of bridging this gap of sin, right? But God, in his amazing grace, even though we have turned our backs on God, even though we are actively shaking our fist at God, choosing to live in our own sin and brokenness, he sends Jesus to die on the cross, to bear the penalty for our sins so that we can move back into right relationship with God. Sin is like, imagine there's a, a drowning man. He falls through the ice. I'm imagining there's ice out there somewhere. So he falls through the ice and he's drowning, but somebody pulls him out of that lake. He needs to be resuscitated, but that man, right, he can't resuscitate himself, right? He needs somebody stronger, somebody who has life to breathe life into him. And that's what God does for us. As we are drowning and dead in our sin, he pulls us up out of the, out of the water and breathes new lice. New, not lice, that would be terrible. That would be a bad thing. He breathes new life into us. Anybody with little kids knows how bad that would be. That would be. So that is, that is grace. That is grace. What's that? Watch yourself. Okay, so today, even though grace is multifaceted, there's common grace, there is uh, drawing grace, there is sustaining grace, there's all these different facets of grace. Today, we're specifically looking at saving grace. And saving grace is, not surprisingly, the grace that saves a person. This is the grace that moves a person from one side of that gorge to the other. 
from hopelessness in the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, into the kingdom of God. This is saving grace. And really, as we look at the the historical overview of the church, this idea of saving grace is where different theologians and and different church groups really begin to disagree quite sharply and uh, and so the, and the reason is they're trying to understand, right, how do we, how do we understand saving grace? It, is, it makes no sense, right, from our human context. Like, how could it be that God would be this loving, that he would be this gracious to pay the price he did to save people like us, right? Or, and how does this grace even work? Who gets it? How do I get my hands on this grace, right? And so that excitingly, is what we are talking about today. And we are starting about 1,500 years ago in the 5th century. There was this guy named Pelagius. And my lovely wife said, is he the guy who invented plagiarism? He is not. (laughs) This is Pelagius. And he is this British... Okay, that didn't work. Okay, there's the, he's this British uh, theologian, right? And he is, he's saying that man, that humanity is not tainted by original sin. If you remember, original sin is this biblical idea that in Adam's sin, sin entered into all of humanity. We now inherit this sin from Adam. And he said that Humanity doesn't, we aren't tainted by original sin. And Adam didn't bring sin into all of humanity. He's just a bad example. We should just try to not be like Adam, right? And, he, and as he continues thinking about this, he goes, And Jesus, the Christ, isn't the Savior. He didn't save us from original sin because that's not a thing. He's just a good example. And so here we have in the biblical story this uh, don't be like Adam, be like Jesus, right? And he, when he talks about grace, he's talking about man's free will to either choose to do good or choose to do bad, all right? And, and so this is how he is wrestling through these ideas. He is an ascetic, all right? He is this guy, this theologian that practices a very severe self-discipline, right? He's able to just like, I'm just not going to sin. I'm just going to do good. I think Paul might have been a little bit like this, right? He's able to kind of will himself to make the best choices that he could. And so he says that the value and the purpose of religion is to teach us virtues and that by great effort, it is possible for people to achieve moral perfection. If you just try harder, just do better, just stop making bad choices. Don't be like Adam, be like Jesus, right? And so Pelagius uh, is talking about this in the church in the fifth century, and there's a group of people that are pretty unhappy with, with, with Pelagius. And one of those guys is St. Augustine, And St. Augustine is maybe the most influential, most important thinker in church history. And Augustine comes into severe conflict with Augustine because he's saying that, or he comes in conflict with Pelagius 
And he says that Pelagius' teaching is a burden that is far too great for people to bear. Right? This idea that you can just be good enough to get into heaven it is putting these heavy, impossible weights on people's lives. And it also doesn't explain right, why Jesus had to die for anyone's sin. Right? And so these are the huge problems with Pelagius' ideas. He says, If man can redeem themselves by their own efforts, then atonement on the cross was at best a vague sort of moral example. And Pelagius would say, yeah, exactly. But that is not what the biblical text says at all. It's a complete misunderstanding. It's just kind of moralizing this incredible book, this story of the grace of God that we have received. And so Augustine, he argued that Adam did bring sin, judgment, and condemnation into the world. And it is only through Christ that we can step into life, that we can be made righteous before God, and we can span that massive chasm that stands between us and a holy God. He was very, very clear that there's no amount of work, no amount of effort that we can take that is going to make us holy before God. Augustine said, men are a mass of sin. They can no more endow themselves with grace than an empty glass can fill itself. Right? Without Jesus, we are an empty glass. Right? So that's a very, very quick overview of Pelagius and Augustine. There's a little bit more nuance in there and some more arguments. But what can we take away from this historical reality of this conflict between Pelagius and Augustine? Well, if you didn't catch on, Pelagius is a little bit humanist. He is a little bit, he is a lot saying that, man, we're just good enough, right? We have been created good, and if we just work hard, right, we can earn our way into, into heaven, right? And that is just incorrect, right? It is humanism, and, and that is rampant inside the church and outside the church, so many people just believe that they can earn their way in. There's this TV show called The, the Good Place. I don't know if any of you guys have seen the, the Good Place. It stars the guy who was in Cheers, whatever that guy's name was, Ted Danson. And in, in The Good Place, it's this, it's this story about these four people who, going through life, they, they all die and they end up in the bad place, right? And what we find out as the, the, the story progresses is that there's this point system. If they earn enough points in life, they will earn their way into the, into the good place. And if they don't make enough points, they end up in the bad place, right? So it's a great TV show, but really terrible theology. So don't get your theology from NBC, please, all right? And let's, we just recognize that uh, humanism, Pelagianism, we cannot earn our way into heaven. The, the fifth century church got that pretty solid. We can't earn our way into heaven. But then we move on from the, the fifth century, and we're going to jump forward just like a thousand years. 
into uh, the, the 15th, 16th century. And Catholicism is the way of the, the West. So there was a split in the church hundreds of years before this. There's this Eastern Orthodox Church, and then there's the Western Church. And everybody in the Western Church is Catholic. And what, the, the, what Catholicism taught was that the benefits of Christ's sacrifice, his grace, are conveyed physically through the church's sacraments. Right? There's this understanding that the church holds this treasury of grace. And they can dispense grace into your account through certain actions. Okay? Uh, and so, for example, this is from Bruce Demarest in his book, The Cross and Salvation. The baptized person is justified, so made right before God, as he or she cooperates with the sacramentally infused grace and performs meritorious works. Okay? And that is the problem, is the and. Okay? This, like, I am, this is in no way... Uh, we're not down on the, the Catholic Church. We have very much in, in common. Uh, but this is one of the areas, within a few areas, that we disagree. We feel like they're adding too much to faith. That you, are, you have to say the right things and do the right things and, and say the right prayers and in order to have this grace put into your account. And not only that, but in, the, in medieval Catholicism in the 15th and 16th century, there is a big problem. There are these corrupt priests going around towns and villages selling indulgences. Right? And an indulgence is uh, a way to reduce the amount of punishment one has to undergo for sins. It may reduce the temporal punishment for sin after death. That means is that there's this idea of purgatory. And after death, you move into purgatory to, if you are a believer, to pay for all of your sins to get purified before moving on to the good place. But these priests, these Catholic priests, were wandering around saying, hey, you know what? If you give a little bit of money to the church, we can dispense a little bit more grace into your account. Not only that, we could dispense a little bit of grace into your grandfather's account because he was a little bit rough. He's probably struggling in purgatory right now. And so we have the authority to dispense some of the treasury of grace into that account, and it's just going to cost you this much money. Well, you may have heard of this guy. His name was Martin Luther. He didn't much care for what the Catholic Church was doing in, in uh, the 15th century there, the 16th century, excuse me. And um, he opposed this idea, that, that gr the, this view of grace as a substance which could be given to people through the sacraments or be sold to people through indulgences, right? He rightly saw this as works. And so Martin Luther, maybe you have heard, we just celebrated in 2017 the 500, 500th anniversary of the Reformation, when Martin Luther takes these 95 theses and pounds them to the, the Wittenberg door and begins this reformation of the church. He is called a heretic and, and chased out of, out of town by the Catholic Church, but he transforms how what would we 
now considered Protestant Christians, begin thinking about grace. And there's a lot of other stuff that he's dealing with, but today, friends, because we have 30 minutes, we're just talking about this little narrow slice. Right? And this is what Martin Luther said in, in contradiction with what the Catholic Church was doing. He said, human works or will avail us nothing. Grace is a free gift. Grace is given freely to those without merits and the most undeserving. It is not obtained by any efforts, endeavors, or works, whether small or great. Even the best and most virtuous of men, though they seek and pursue righteousness with burning zeal. That's great, Martin Luther. That's great. What he's saying is that there's no works. You can't buy your way in. You can't, you know, there's not a treasury of grace that you can get dispensed into your account. There's no works. There's no money. There's no prayers. There's no rights that get you saved. It is, he restores this idea that we see, especially in the book of Ephesians and throughout the New Testament, that we are saved by grace through faith alone. And we cannot add any work or effort on top of that, right? We look at the book of James and we can see like, oh, James is saying that we are saved by works. Is this in contradiction with what what Paul is teaching? And if we look at the, the context of that, we really see that Paul and James are on the exact same page. It's, that is the works aren't earning you in, the works aren't giving you grace, but good works reveal that you have received grace. Right? And so good works are valuable. They are a part of Christianity, but it is not any way of getting you into God's good graces. So what can we take away from this conflict in the, the, uh, 500 years ago? in 1517, between Martin Luther and medieval Catholicism. Well, we can certainly remember and we can learn what the the church stood up for and said, grace is by faith alone. There is no work that you can do that earns you in. We say this all the time, but in our practice... All of us can fall into this really, really easily. I don't, not anybody here, but other people I've heard of have done some sinful act, right? And they have felt like, man, not only do I need to repent, but I need to, maybe if I read my Bible or turn up to church or do this thing, maybe I'll give a little bit of extra tithe. That way I can get back into God's good graces, right? It's so easy to do. We've probably all done it. Or thought it. But the reality is, when we repent, God is faithful and just to forgive us. And our invitation, our calling, is not based on our works, but based on the unmerited favor of God. So, history. (laughs) Okay, moving along. Moving along in Christian thought and Protestantism, we come to Calvinism or Reformed theology. And this gentleman by the name of John Calvin uh, continues on after, uh, shortly after Martin Luther, and he begins thinking about a bunch of stuff. And 
in, in systematizing the faith. And this is what uh, John Calvin said about grace. He said that grace is radically gratuitous. Right? We've already talked about that, that grace is unmerited favor. It's uncalled for. It's unwarranted. We don't deserve it. We can't do anything to make ourselves worthy of it. Number two, he said that grace is effectual. Right? God's will and working can never be thwarted. If God choose to bestow, chooses to bestow grace on somebody, they're in. And then, number three, God's grace is secret in its working, John Calvin said. The blessings of grace happen through the secret providence of God whose judgments are unsearchable and his ways past finding out. Right? So what Reformed theology says is in eternity past, God sovereignly purposed to bestow saving grace upon whom he would. I'm being very careful. My, my lovely mom and my father are good, God-loving reformers. Reformed. Many, many of us are probably reformed. So I'm not, um, uh, I'm not creating boundaries here. I'm just trying to explain how these different ideas have been taught in the, in the history of the church. And don't worry, we're going to end with where we agree. Okay? So... We're not creating boundaries. We're not creating division. We're just talking about Calvinism. In eternity past, God sovereignly purposed to bestow saving grace upon whom he would. And so Calvinists, Reformed theologians, would say there's no such thing as this universal prevenient grace. All right, what is universal prevenient grace? Uh, what we learned from Pelagius is that, that man is unable to cross this bridge, right? We are what, uh, they would, what we would call totally deprived. We are incapable, right? We've talked about that a lot already today. And there is a teaching that we're going to talk about Arminianism in a moment. Don't worry, guys, there's more. We're going to talk about Arminianism in a moment, and Arminians would say that there's this drawing or this prevenient grace that is released from the cross that overcomes this depravity so that people can't, so that anybody can turn to, uh, turn to God. But Calvinism says there's no such thing as that. God dispenses grace on who he chooses to dispense grace. I'm not looking at you, Mom. <laughs> Okay, good. Okay, um, so they would interpret John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent them or who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. That seems very clear, right? Only those who, uh, who the Father has sent who draws. What does it say? Oh, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, right? And so the Father is drawing certain people. And because grace is effectual, it is impossible for God to reach out with grace and you not to respond. And so in Calvinism, your will is changed that you want to respond. Okay? Great. And this is uh, a quote from Bruce Demarest, a Reformed theologian, again in the book The Cross and Salvation. He says that the rest of humanity... He left in their self-chosen sin to suffer the just penalty thereof. 
right? And so it's not that he condemned them to die. They have just continued to choose their rejection of God. And the Reformed theologians would say that the elect, we read about the elect throughout the Bible, that these are those that God has sovereignly chosen. Okay? Is that fair? Yes, it is. So in comes this guy named Jacob Arminius. Um, we should put a, a red S on his, on his chest and a, and a cape. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so here comes Jacob Arminius, and he has some disagreements with John Calvin. Right. Is my bias showing through? We're being fair. So Jacob Arminius says that in love, God sent Christ into the world for the purpose of saving all humankind from the ruin of sin. And God desires the salvation of all people. Right? And so he would rest on a passage like 1 Timothy 2.4. God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants all people to be saved. And in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so Ar Arminius comes up with this idea of prevenient grace, this universal grace that we talked about a minute ago, right? That, that grace comes from Christ's cross and it transforms people. It nullifies the debilitating effects of depravity, right? We talked about humanity is totally depraved. We cannot cross the bridge, and we don't even want to cross this great chasm separating us from God. And so this prevenient grace nullifies those effects so that people now can turn to God. This uh, grace also restores moral free agency. Now, instead of uh, in our fallenness and depravity because of God's grace we can actually make choices we can make choices like submitting to the lordship of Jesus and third this prevenient grace convicts the world of sin right without grace we would be unaware of our fallenness and our sinfulness and our brokenness but this prevenient grace in Arminian theology restores that brings conviction of sin Jacob says, man himself without prevenient, assisting, awakening, following, and cooperative grace can neither think, will, nor do good, nor withstand any temptations to evil, so that all good deeds and movements that can be conceived must be ascribed to the grace of God in Christ. Right? Uh, another relatively long quote that says, yes, there is depravity, but it is only through the grace of God. Right? And there is this argument like, from the, the Reformed side that says That's, you're just adding another work. You're just like the medieval Catholic Church. You're just adding works to that. And Arminius would say, no, 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 no. It's not a work at all. It's just the reception of a free gift that God is offering to all of humanity. And so the big conflict here being that this prevenient or drawing grace is resistible. 
whereas the Reformed theologian would say that it is irresistible, all right? And so we have this conflict. And I have been in seminary for, uh, I don't know, five years now, and I've been in Bible college for a few years before that. And I tell you what, theologians love to argue about this. This is a real favorite, right? And, and I can also tell you, I have read a lot of books, and I've talked to a lot of people, that there are incredibly brilliant people on both sides of this argument. Right? There are, in, on both sides of this argument, we see people who love God, and they're, they're just trying to rightly interpret the Scriptures. And so if we trying to come and draw lines and say, oh man, those Arminians, they, they don't care about the word of God. They're just misinterpreting it to support their bias, right? Or we, or an Arminian would say, oh, don't listen to those Calvinists, right? They are just angry or something. I don't know, whatever. But we don't want to create these boundaries between the two of us because all Arminians, Calvinists, and these are really broad brushes, right? There is so much nuance within this. You know, there's a variety of, uh, of Calvinists and Arminians and traditionalists, and people are wrestling through this. Anyway, that's all on a side. The elect in Arminian theology, these are those who have put their faith in Christ, right? These are not the ones that God has chosen, because God has chosen all people. But when people respond to the grace of God, step into him, they are now the elect. They are now the chosen. You are elect in Christ because Jesus is the elect one. Okay? Broad, broad descriptions of, of, of these, of these uh, theologies. And why is there a day? We already kind of talked about this, right? They're both all sides of this argument, they're trying to, to rightly interpret Scripture. They're trying to glorify God and figure out this incredible grace that we have received. And there's these brilliant people on, on both sides, all the sides of this argument. Okay, so let's end in a happy place. Where is it that we agree whether we're Calvinists or Arminians? All these things fall under orthodox, orthodox Christian belief, just right belief. This, whether you're an Arminian, whether you're a Calvinist, you fall under orthodox teaching of the church. So where is it that we agree? We agree that humanity is incapable of attaining salvation on its own. Before the grace of God, we uh, are totally depraved and cannot cross the gap. Paul says, you who were dead in trespasses and sins. We were dead. We needed somebody to pull us out of the water and breathe new life into us. We agree that grace is unmerited favor. There's nothing that we can do to earn our way in. It is by grace you have been saved. Right? It is unmerited favor. We agree that grace is powerful. Jack Hayford, he's a... He's an author. I think he wrote a worship song back in the day. Anyway, Jack Hayford says, God's grace has the power to bring us from death to life, from failure, guilt, shame, and sin to forgiveness and into relationship with him. Right? When we understand the depth of our sin, how far away from God we were, we see the power of God to breathe new life, to transform, 
uh, transmit us from the kingdom of darkness to die to the law of sin and death and be made alive to the law of the Spirit. Grace is powerful. Not only is grace powerful, but we also agree that grace empowers. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. The grace of God in us transforms us and empowers us to do all the good works that he has called us to do. Where do we agree? We agree that God's saving grace is entirely God's doing. This is similar to the first one. But this is God reaching out. Nothing that we did, but this is just God reaching out because of his love for his creation. It is not, uh, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's God reaching down to restore us, to pull us from the miry depths of death. We agree that grace is imparted to us through our faith. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. Right? And these, and so you can see that there's many, many, many areas that we within Orthodox Christianity agree about grace. And we don't want you to be ignorant that there are thousands of years of discussion on how grace works. And so as we spend the next five months or so talking about grace, we're going to be talking about it from this biblical perspective. We're going to be looking at the New Testament. What do these New Testament authors say about grace? We're going to be looking at the Old Testament. Where do we see the incredible love and grace of God revealed in the Old Testament? It's not a different God in the Old Testament. It's the same one. All right, and we're going to, so we're going to look at all these biblical teachings on grace, but we wanted to say, hey, there is 2,000 years of discussion that is valuable to us to help us to rightly interpret and rightly think about grace. And it's because our church fathers, the people who have come before us, valued grace so much that they are willing to argue and and fight to come up with the, the best interpretation. And we at New Day value grace As much as that, we want us all to grow and and abound and dive in and have a greater understanding of this incredible grace of God than we do here today. We want to end this year abounding in grace more than we have right now. Okay? So that is our historical overview of the big ideas of grace. And I think, because this is a sermon, we should take away something beneficial from it. Hopefully there already is been something. But we can stand back and look at the massive beauty of God's grace. And we can stand in awe that however it works, even if we never fully figure it out, which is likely, we can rejoice in the fact that God, through Jesus Christ, has lavished his love and his grace upon us. And so we can go home today rejoicing that we have been called according to his purposes.